You are tuned to 102.7 3RRR and it's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We're the program about all things wet and salty. Good morning. My name's Bron Burton. Uh, my name's Dr Beach. How are you, Dr Beach? I'm very well. Excellent. We're also joined in studio by Kent, who will probably stay off mic. Maybe, yes, he's nodding. Hey, thanks very much to Tim Thorpe for another wonderful Vital Bits and to uh, Andrew Minger for wonderful Soulful Bits. Well, indeed, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, you can catch, As always. catch Tim next Saturday for Vital Bits once again. One can. Yeah. And then next Sunday. Yeah. And then the Saturday after that and the Sunday after that. Yeah. Tim is... Around and around we go. Omnipresent. <laughs> uh, on today's program, we got a massive one once again lined up for you. Um, shortly we'll be speaking with Neil Blake, our very own Port Phillip Baykeeper, about... The native wells on the beach between Bow Morris and Brighton. Have you heard about these, Dr Beach? I have not. Native wells. Mm. So we're going to find out all about them. I, I was about to ask you questions, but let's wait till last, to ask... Um, let's wait and ask Neil when he comes into the studio. We will. Hope you arrive soon. I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> Uh, we are also um, going to talk to Neil about a particular type of whelk shell, a Hercules Club whelk shell, which has been found at Point Richards. A whelk. A whelk. W-E-L-K? W-H-E-L-K. Oh, there's an H there, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hasn't been recorded in Victoria, west of Wingan, England, but it's rocked up at Point Richards, so we're going to talk to Neil about that too. Okay. Maybe even find out a little bit about Point Richards, where it is. Yeah. And uh, why all of a sudden we've got this discovery. Presumably someone hasn't just, you know, put it in their pocket and walked around to Point Richards and plonked it there. There's been some keen malacologists out there. (laughs) Wanting to play some tricks. Yes. Keep all the other malacologists on their toes. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're then going to catch up with Eric Fitzgerald. He is the Senior Curator of Paleontology Museum Victoria. Very exciting to be speaking with Eric about an exciting discovery that uh, looks like it might account for a five million year gap in the global fossil record of baleen whales. Cool. Five million years. Just a hole in the fossil record? Yeah. Well, it's it's an evolutionary hole. So okay. there's this kind of mysterious thing that happened with um, with baleen whales where they went from having teeth to all of a sudden not having teeth. And paleontologists have sort of wondered why, you know, and when, what kind of led to them losing their teeth. So there's been a very, very significant discovery right here in Victoria, which looks like it might actually close that gap. Nice one. Mm, so it's a... Um, piece of work that he's been doing with some colleagues in New Zealand and somewhere else, Belgium I think it was. Okie dokie. Yeah. And then... And then we're going to have a bit of life at the beach at the end. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I love symbiosis. I think you've probably heard me bang on about this. This is where two organisms have a relationship and you know, both get good things out of it. And here we have a tripartite endosymbiosis this is between a, um, a bacterium which makes nasty things um, well, not nasty things. They're things which are unpalatable for um, fish. And these bacteria make these materials for seaweed, green seaweed, called bryopsis, so that when fish eat the bryopsis, they go... Pluh, pluh. They spit it out because of these um, things that the bacteria make. Do they make. make that noise? They do. They do make that noise. But interestingly, there's a sea slug, which is called Alicia. And Alicia eats the bryopsis and also gets a benefit from this. So there's ah. a paper which is teased, teased out all of these interrelationships using genomics, all sorts of fancy new techniques, and a little bit of basic microscopy. And anyway, it's a cracker. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. 
Looking forward to that. We're going to catch up with Terry Allen, I should have mentioned as well, for a dive report and a catch-up on the spider crabs because they're back, Dr Beach. The spider crabs are invading the bay. We get very excited. In a nice way. Yeah, in a good way. Yeah, in a very nice way. Uh, now, uh, normally at this point in the program, we have a little forecast of what the weather's likely to do today. It's very important. Oh, all right, I'll do that for you. Megahertz are training at, you know, 10 and, to 10.30. And, well, it's next week, isn't it? It is. Next Sunday is the it Community is. Cup. Have you got your tickets? <laughs> uh, not yet. I would get onto that pretty soon. That's though. right, because remember, you can't just rock up to the ground and buy tickets like you could in the good old days back at Austin Park. You can, but it comes with a risk that you might not be able to. Oh, right, okay. You know, I yeah. think you can. That's right, yeah. Yeah, you can. All right, yeah, keep me on tense, track. Tense. Make sure I'm not telling porkies on air. Uh, today's <laughs> going to be 16 degrees, Brom, partly cloudy, patchy morning fog about the nearby hills, slight chance of a shower, light winds. Um, <coughs> very slight chance of a shower. Oh, it's bloody beautiful out there now. It's mm. nice and sunny, a nice crisp winter morning. Um, tomorrow's going to be 17 degrees, mostly sunny. Tuesday, dropping down to 13 degrees. Get out your winter woolies. Good. Um, 13 on Wednesday, 12 on Thursday, with a minimum of 4 on Thursday. Oof. So it's going to be chilly later on in the week with just a smattering of rain. Um, yeah, so not too much rain. If you're heading out onto the water, you'll be wanting to know what's happening with the tides at Point Lonsdale, which, of course, represents the heads of our fair Port Phillip. Um, it is high tide at just after 11am this morning at 1.59 it's a 1.59 metre high tide. Swells, coin to swell now, we don't have Dr Surf here, but solid swells and moderate northwest winds are producing great waves in Torquas. That's all I talk about is Torquay. Uh, water temperature is 15 degrees, so everybody's going to Torquay today to go surfing. And as always, if you want the most up-to-date forecast for surfing, make sure you go to the swellnet.com webpage because uh, we are reading from a paper that was printed some hours ago and the conditions can change. We always want to put that caveat in there. That's right. We've got time for a couple of bits of news. Yeah, just a couple of bits of news. Um, the Aurora Australis, Aurora Australis, the mm. icebreaker that um, the Antarctic Division had, uh, is a little bit out of date. It's been yeah, it's been a workhorse for the last thirty or thirty-five years. Done lots of good jobs, uh, but everybody's very excited down in Tasmania and all those that work for the Antarctic Division because there is the RSV Noina N U Y I N A, which is currently under construction in Romania and is going to be ready for use next year. And Noina N U Y I N A. Do you know what that means in? Um Aboriginal language? Ah, no. It means Aurora Australis. Oh, does it? It's the southern Aurora. Huh. So this follows cool. the tradition of calling our icebreakers after the um after the southern lights. Anyway, it's going to be cool. It's uh, very expensive. It's going to be big. There's a quote here from Jerry O'Doherty, and I'm reading from yesterday's um one of the news corporations newspapers from yesterday. Um, you can have 18 metre high waves that relentlessly descend upon the ship for days on end so it's going to be robust, strong, very exciting and expensive and it's going to carry our Antarctic research forward into the coming decades. That's wonderful. It I have a couple of wonderful. pieces of good news and a couple of pieces of not good news. I'll do the, good, uh, the not good news one to get it out of the way. Uh, obviously we're all aware of the fact that um, Adani has received its approval for Go Ahead with Carmichael Mine, which happened during the week. We are too well aware of them. We're going to leave that one right there. Nothing really more needs to be said. Mm. But um, I think also, pro other than props to the campaigners who have been fighting so hard to prevent this from happening. Yep. Thank you on behalf of us all. 
Let's see what comes from that. The good news, which I want to finish on be, uh, before we go to a track, or have you got another piece of news there, Dr Beach? Uh, no, you do yours. Okay, just really quickly, um, congratulations to the winners of the Sustainable Victoria, Sustainability Victoria uh, Resource Awards, which came out this week. Um, two schools in particular I wanted to give a big shout-out to, Warrnambool East Primary School. Uh, they won a Sustainability Award for their beach cleanups. Nice. So congratulations, Warrnambool East Primary School. I can just imagine. I'm picturing them all down there now on the beach at Warrnambool, busying themselves cleaning up stuff. We know we have a lot of listeners in Warrnambool and Triple R subscribers as well, so big shout-out to, to you guys. But if you know anyone in Warrnambool East Primary School, please pass on our congratulations because it's fantastic. The school's specialist science teacher, Kerry McCarthy, said the students were surprised and honoured to have their efforts recognised. Isn't that lovely? It, it makes beautiful. them stand up taller and motivates them to keep going and make more of a difference. So I just thought that was wonderful. And they submit all of their data into the Tangaroa Blues National Marine Debris Database. So good on you guys. Fantastic. Um, St. Aloysius Catholic Primary School in Queenscliff also picked up an award. They've been doing um, some sustainability work, uh, really educating their kids about the impacts of um, litter, amongst other things, from the classroom to the shore. So congratulations to you guys too. You are also recognised. So lots of sustainability awards, but these two in particular had a marine and coastal theme. Fantastic. Just one other quick thing before we move further into the program. Uh, the editorial from um, Science Magazine or Science Journal this week is written by um, Jane Lubchenco and Stephen Gaines, uh, and it's entitled A New Narrative for the Ocean. This is um, timely as we had World Oceans Day very recently, and you heard a lot about it on this program. Um, and they're talking about, you know, the, the state of the oceans. Pretty bad. We talk about it all the time on this program, and they are also underscoring how they've even though many people might be getting very depressed about this and thinking oh, it's all doom and gloom, it's all over, um, there are undeniable challenges, uh, but there are lots of opportunities ahead for us with new technologies to you know, regulate fishing better, to, you know, plastics, um, not digging coal out of the ground and burning it, all these kinds of things that we should be doing to look after the oceans. And, and this is yeah, written by Jane Lovjenko, um, who is the current editor of Science, but um, and she's at Oregon State University, but she's the former administrator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Hmm. I sat next to her on a plane once. It's very exciting. Were you starstruck? Well, I didn't know who she was. I mean, we, we just stuck up, struck up a conversation about science, and I thought, yeah, boy, she knows a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I checked her out afterwards. I was like, oh, right. That's Jane. Ooh. That's the Jane. I would have been, I have these, you know, I would have been very starstruck. Yeah. Well, I didn't, I, I didn't know didn't enough know to be starstruck. Yeah, I was correct. just impressed and enjoying yeah. the conversation. Very good. <laughs> it's coming up to 11 past nine. This is Radio Marinara. And in just a moment, we'll be catching up with Neil Blake. Without further ado, we'll work. We'll, 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 <laughs> I'll try and say that again. I've, Smooth, bro. I've had too many yeah. coffees this morning. Welcome, Neil Blake. Good morning, Brian. How are Lovely you? to be here. I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. Yeah. Um, great to have you back. Yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a wild week, actually. The, um, the coastal, Marine and Coastal Forum was quite a blast. I spent quite a bit of time there. Shall we start with that? I didn't actually mention that you would be talking about that, but we did talk about that off air. Yeah, well, there's so much to talk about. You could probably have two or three shows about it, but, you know, the presentations from a whole range of different um, individuals and organisations. Uh, some really interesting stuff going on along the Victorian coast. So, so uh, yeah, I guess it augurs well for the future that people were meeting others that they'd never met before, you know, so there's lots of... Uh, energy and love in the room okay and this happens once a year 
does it? Well, that's a good question. I'm not too certain about that, to be honest. But it's, uh, yes, convened by DELP. And uh, uh, particularly an emphasis on getting community organisations represented and and present in there too, so that uh, that the networking can... It's really a networking exercise. Fantastic. Maybe next time you come in, we'll explore this in a bit more detail. Yeah, I think so. So let's talk about local uh, sandstone layers. um, Well, actually, they're native wells. I'm reading from my notes here. Mm. We were wondering about native wells. What are native wells? Well, they're actually being excavated in the sandstone uh, along the beach um, between Black Rock and possibly to as far as um, Point Ormond in in Elwood. But uh, some of them would have been covered over by uh, seawalls and rocks and things like that that have been uh, put there since uh, white people arrived. Uh, But uh, essentially they were uh, areas where... Uh, groundwater was seeping through the sandstone layers. There's two sandstone layers that are uh, considered to be the Brighton Coastal Plain, which uh, underlie much of the area of the sand belt. And uh, the um, two layers, though, have sort of bits of gravelly bits in between the layers, and the, and the groundwater would seep through there mm-hmm. and actually emerge at. at at the base of cliffs uh, between Black Rock and Brighton. Uh, and the sandstone then had been sort of dug into smaller, not not huge wide things, but maybe only perhaps uh, 400 millimetres wide and, and uh, possibly half a, half a metre to a metre deep uh, for that water to accumulate in at low tide. So, and what's the significance of them? Why is this uh, becoming an issue at the moment? Why are we talking about them right now? Oh, it's not an issue, oh, but okay. uh, uh, I suppose probably the only issue is that um, they haven't really been recognised uh, in terms of uh, planning, for right. example. And uh, uh, I, I guess the ongoing issue, though, is that Indigenous culture mm. has really not get, been given much prominence uh, by the mainstream community and government and uh, you know we really need to go into a bit of truth telling and <laughs> and uh, working towards particularly with the talk of treaty etc mm. uh, we've, we've got to sort of embrace the fact that uh, the first people were here and there was no such thing as terra nullius and uh, there's a really tangible proof and evidence of their presence. And Neil we're talking about these now but are there any of these that um, are kind of very obvious to, to, to see to somebody who's walking between, you know, down on that side of the bay at the moment? Well, uh, I guess well, if you... Well, they're kind of cryptic. If you, no, you'd probably be able to pick them if you if you were aware they were there. But, you know, like I've got a lovely photo of uh, uh, a well with an esky next to it and some Coke, Coca-Cola cans spread around it and the people and, and a towel on the beach. And th- those people obviously probably wouldn't have even known what it was or... Mm thought about it because they got their mind on other things and, and hadn't even heard about wells in any way. So it, it, it would look like just kind of a, a bit of a ditch, would it? Or can, can you well, a hole, it? a hole, as yeah, so uh, so not a curved thing because they're, they're more excavated down in, into the sandstone. Uh, yeah, so it's a, just a rounded uh, opening in, in the sand, sandstone and that's all it is. Wow. Has there been any um, sort of archaeological dating on, on when these were first sort of in, enlarged, if you like, from the natural fissure which was coming up out of the ground? So when, when people first started using these as 
as well. So. No, not that I'm aware of. Uh, there's, there, there is some information about them in a, a booklet that the Sandringham Council produced uh, back in the 1990s about the Boonarung people of the... Uh, and their use of the coast. But uh, it doesn't go into that level of detail. I, I guess um, there may have been some archaeological considerations of them, but uh, at one point, uh, not that long ago, um, I actually had to point out where one of them was to Aboriginal Affairs Victoria people who uh, were... <laughs> were <laughs> right. So the, possibly they're not even registered. And, and, and I guess not even signposted. I mean, there's no, no there's, definitely there's, not. No. There's not one of them that's got a sign on it saying this is a, an indigenous well. Yeah, they've got an interesting history. Apparently, they were utilised by uh, white people um, out and they were selling uh, water uh, down on the beach at uh, some time back at the turn of last century. So yeah, so uh, and some of them were actually vandalised too. Uh, so that's I suppose always a problem with. Uh, giving prominence to Indigenous sites. And, uh, That's there's right. some people around who just seem to have a nasty streak. Mm. Well, yeah. And, and do they still do any of them still produce potable water? Uh, well, they possibly could. I guess you, you have to be there at the right time, though, and it, uh, it's partly they would be uh, uh, managed in the sense of emptying out any uh, saline water so that when the tide went down... Right. So that then the, the water that accumulated was fresher. Oh, so they are intertidal? Right on the beach. Right. Yeah, at the base of the cliffs. I, I obviously wasn't listening earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what's the next step, Neil, in terms of getting them recognised, do you think? Uh, well, uh, the first thing, I've been talking to um, uh, Carolyn Briggs from the Boonarung Foundation about uh, possibly getting some of her uh, young people to do some study and, and, and to develop more archaeological reports on them. So that's that's the key thing is really they they are the you know ownership by, of the indigenous people and uh, they need to really carry that forward. But uh, I would hope that I'll be able to um, get some assistance from other organisations that can uh, support them in that process. Fantastic. Yeah. Stay uh, tuned. That's right. And, and Neil, I'm looking here at a <coughs> couple of shells. I mean, this is so marinara. We've got shells here on the... On the, desk. Right. <laughs> on, the, on the desk in front of us, a couple of whelks, I believe, of two dramatically different sizes. That's right, yeah, a huge one, that Hercules Club Whelk. What a great name, the Hercules Club Whelk. <laughs> it, it, it's really heavy. It's this beautiful cone-shaped thing with like, um, I, I guess, what is it, about five centimetres long? Um, closer be. to ten, I'd say. Or closer yeah. to ten, yeah, all right, there you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Why are they here? Uh, well, the, um, <laughs> it's a very good question. The, the Hercules Club Welk is more, more commonly found around the Sydney area and, in fact, getting back into history uh, and Indigenous things, uh, Captain Cook collected a few of them when he came uh, over to Botany Bay and took around about half a dozen mollusk species back as specimens, including that one. Now sitting in the British Museum, I'd imagine. Uh, I haven't visited the British Museum, but um, if they're not... Oh, they natural should history, be. I should have said. <laughs> so uh, so, so these, are, these are local shells, aren't they? They're well, they're a native... Uh, yeah, they're yeah. definitely a native Australian shell. But yeah. uh, the Hercules Club work, though, hasn't been recorded in Victoria, uh, west of Wingan Inlet. So uh, the question is, why did one turn up at uh, Point Richards, which is just a little uh, west of Point Arling Port Arlington, oh, okay. in, in, at the top uh, in Cryo Bay? And Wingan Inlet is? Well, that's down sort of eastern Victoria, you know, so it's quite a long way from Port Phillip yeah. Bay. It's near the prom, isn't it? No, 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 Crow Jingle. 
Oh, right, right. Way further east. east. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Thank yeah. you. So we haven't seen one of these shells west of far east Gippsland and now, now all of a sudden it's turned up at Point Richards mm. near Port There's only Island. the one, though. This was found okay. by a Gordon Tafe student too when we were doing a shell survey. But Dead or alive and found? Uh, well, it was dead. It was just a shell. And I guess from a scientific point of view, um, you know, the true scientist would say, well, we can't record that as being living in the area because it's dead. That's, That's right. <laughs> someone, someone could have come back from camping at Wigan Inlet, had it in their pocket, dropped it on the beach. I thought, oh, I'd better return this to the beach. Uh, that's quite possible. But uh, from my mind, uh, I'm interested in looking at any, uh, following up any clues, or, you know, so it, it, if in anything, at least it's an indication that they may be there. Yeah. Do you have a theory? Uh, no, I, I'm keeping an open mind on okay. it at this stage. But, uh, yes, yeah, I guess it just highlights, though, uh, how any any day on the beach, if you're actually being observant, you might turn up things that you don't expect to. Yeah, I find this one fascinating because you would kind of really need to know what you were looking at to spot this one as being different from the rest because it's a, it's a whelk shell. It's a, a cone shell like many other cone shells. So, mm. yeah, you'd need to have your malacology taxonomy... Cone-shaped cone shell. Cone-shaped shell, yes. Cone shells are very special things. Yes, Correct. So. Thank you for the correction there, Dr. Yeah. Beach. And yes, they, yeah. these, are, these are predatory. It's a snail, yeah. Though. Yeah, they're predatory snails, aren't they? Mm. I think they're drillers. So they, they, they kill other, like, bivalves and pippies and things. You see holes in the pippies that's been killed by one of these guys. Yeah, so uh, over the next... Um, a week or so I'm going to be compiling a lot of the shoreline shell survey data that I've um, accumulated over the last 10 years mm -hmm. and certainly this is the first time that's turned up in any beach survey that I've conducted and uh, it'd be interesting to go to, I'm hoping to talk to people at the museum about uh, some species that I can't identify mm. and the aim of the shoreline shell surveys though is to create posters so that um, people who living locally in their area have got some clues as to what they might expect to find on their beach and also what to call it. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think if you don't know what to call something, you don't talk about it. And if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Well, and that comes back to the wells that you were talking about earlier Yeah, too. that's right. We've yeah. got to draw attention to these things. Uh, we'll have to wind up shortly. What else have you got coming up in the next four to six weeks just to let people know about? Oh, well, the, uh, the Scouts um, Street Daughters, I'm heading out to Tallow Park this morning straight after the show to train the Scouts group out there <coughs> in that, that method. So uh, that's all that sort of stuff going on. Uh, having a little bit of a break, though, um, to uh, recharge. From the <laughs> it's been a pretty frantic uh, six months of this this year. Uh, but, yeah, so the shoreline, uh, the shell surveys, though, is a really key one for me, and I'd like to perhaps... Uh, be launching um, that in some sense to the wider community. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. We always a pleasure having you in and great to um, speak with you. By the way, Captain Trash is oh. exhibited at Pan Pacific at the moment too, along with fantastic other uh, portraits. Yeah, so it's a well wonderful look. It's a wonderful portrait. I haven't seen it in its uh, in its um, full glory. Thank you. <laughs> 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 but I've seen an image of it um, on my phone, and yeah. it's really wonderful. Where is Pan Pacific? Uh, it's, it's at the back. It's at South Wharf, but yep. um, uh, behind the convention centre, I suppose, or just west of the convention centre. All this fame's not going to Captain Trash's head, I hope. So, a big shout out <laughs> to Brenda Walsh, the <laughs> artist who uh, painted it. Thanks, Neil. We'll catch you soon. We're now crossing to Terry Allen, our dive reporter. We haven't spoken for so long. How are you, Terry? 
I'm great, Bron. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. How's your... Um, now, we've been uh, keeping our listeners posted about your travels overseas. You've had an amazing run. How's it been for you? Uh, yeah, it was pretty incredible. Um, I, I have to say, I have to pinch myself sometimes and think how lucky uh, we are as divers and, and I am as a cave diver. And Yeah, we went to Malta to see some... To, and then off to Sardinia to dive some incredible caves and then to Budapest to dive in a cave right under the city so uh, yeah pretty mind blowing and the Mediterranean we actually saw some fish, I was very amazed <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great um, in fact I've got a, I've, if I've got a minute, just a quick funny one uh, in Malta um, beautiful island of course little tiny bays but they had an enormous storm there a couple of months ago and a whole lot of fish Sea brim, I think they were, actually got um, picked up by these huge waves in this bay and and dumped, literally raining, down onto the land. And uh, they also have fish farms there, floating fish farms, and they were broken and the fish all got out and these were the fish that then washed up on the shore. So all the locals ran around and quickly grabbed their share of uh, free fish. It's very funny. T- Terry, you said they were literally raining down onto the beach. So were they kind of sucked up into the air? And I mean, it does sometimes happen. You can have raining fish. But so was that yeah. truly that phenomenon or were they getting sort of thrown up with the waves? I think they were getting thrown up with the waves. Right. I think the Maltese version was that they were raining <laughs> fish, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Made for a better story. But, I mean, they literally, where they pointed out they were like, like, a hundred metres or more up from the current shoreline, so it must have been an amazing storm. Wow! Yeah, like fishnado. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you? Have you been diving since you've been back here in Melbourne? I I have to say I've only been virtual diving. I've I've been a bit naughty. I got back um, after a few weeks of using my dry suit, and it's got a few holes in it, and. The water temperatures are a bit cold, so I've been a bit soft. But um, I've been following on uh, Facebook and chatting to friends and keeping an eye on things. And I think uh, the last, well, I saw all the bad weather, of course, we had while I was away. But the last week or so has been fabulous. Um, saw some beautiful footage out at the George Commode yesterday. I don't know if you remember where that is, Bron, um, out off uh, Phillip Island. Oh, yeah. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Purpose sunk, uh, I think, early 80s. Um, a beautiful wreck, nice and shallow, really good. Beautiful um, fish life there, schools of uh, yellowfin pike. And, um, yeah, it's a great dive. And I saw some footage just uh, one of the dive operators took from the surface and it was crystal clear and calm. So that looked really good. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, and then, of course, I've, um, the spider crabs, I've been having a look at uh, what's been going down there. So how are the spider crabs? Last we caught up, well, we haven't caught up with anyone in person, but I've been looking at some of the social media on them and uh, they seem to just suddenly appear out of nowhere and in the, you know, literally thousands of numbers. Um, whereabouts are they at the moment? Do we know? Yeah, so last week was the boom. Um, last weekend and then early this week, uh, so at Blackgarry uh, Marina Pier, and um, there were literally thousands and piling up on top of each other. And if anyone's interested in following more and seeing some great footage, you can join the Spider Crabs Melbourne Facebook page and you'll see lots of beautiful videos and things on there. This weekend has been interesting. They've actually, the numbers have really dropped right off. 
So we don't know whether they've um, possibly moved. Sometimes they move out a little bit further away from the pier. Sometimes they move um, up to Rye Pier. And some years we only see them really at Rye, um, and some years only at Black Gowrie. But um, of note that they haven't molted yet, and uh, you know, as we believe, they they do mass together to for some protection while they're molting, um, and that hasn't occurred yet. And it usually occurs the first full moon of winter. Um, now, somebody told me I think the more, the full moon is either tonight or tomorrow. So the possibility, hoping that they'll come back together in a big number um, and to start molting. Um, the water temperature is about 13 degrees, so it's pretty cold, and that's about the right sort of temperature that they like. Um, and if you're heading down to Blegarry, if you're not a diver or you're not a snorkeler, I have seen some nice footage of people can actually see a whole lot of things happening from the surface. Um, so, yeah, it's worth it. If you've got kids and so it would be worth to go down maybe and have a look. They're not in their thousands like they were, um, but the great thing is there's now, um, I heard a report last night of eight to ten beautiful, smooth, giant smooth rays have come in and they are vacuuming up <laughs> the crabs as they do. That's beauty. Um, and there's even, there's even the albino one has been seen again, which some people nickname as Crystal, the uh, albino ray. And uh, so that would be quite a sight to see, even from the surface. So, you know, lovely sunny day. It's probably worth a, a bit of a drive to have a look. Um, I guess sort of on a slightly sad note, but um, because of all the reports, maybe uh, there are a lot of fishermen now going down, which we haven't really seen that much of in other years. They are legally allowed to catch the crabs with the hoop nets, and sadly, they are allowed to take 30 crabs each, uh, which is a lot. You know, they are a giant crab. Um, the really sad thing is they are completely inedible. They are just, they taste like mud. Um, so if you happen to go down there, we don't want people obviously to be confronting, but kind of nice to mention in passing, oh, you know, they don't taste very good. Um, yeah, so that's been a bit distressing for some of the divers, just seeing just hordes of people pulling them in. I mean, as I say, it's, it, it is legal, but um, there has been talks of perhaps uh, petitioning to protect the crabs at this time while they're molting and etc. So, you know, I don't know much more about it, but um, yeah. You say that's it's cool. legal, Terry. Presumably they have to have a recreational fishing licence to be able to do that. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, they have to have a licence. So, and if you look up your, your regulations when you, when you get a licence, um, you can take up to 30 crabs so yeah it's pretty confronting if you have a if you have a family of five heading down there that's 150 Mm. crabs that could actually legally be taken out of the water if everyone has a recreational fishing license yeah but as you say they're not really edible and they're not really edible i mean that's what's really sad you know they just it they'll really probably pretty much go to waste so you know it's uh it's tough. <laughs> People uh, obviously get a bit emotional about it, and but they course they have to be careful. But I have to say, I've heard great reports of fisheries. Uh, the rangers have been down there a lot, and uh, they've been really on the ball and, you know, counting the crabs, etc. and I guess trying to control the situation as best they can. But, yeah, you sort of think, wow, we all get so excited. We put pictures and reports up, you know, sort of on the ABC News, Facebook, etc., etc. But... 
unfortunately, I suppose it also advertised the fact that crabs are there. Um, but, yeah, maybe we just need a bit of uh, public awareness that, look, you know, they're not really worth taking and then it's certainly not worth eating. That, yeah, they taste like mud. Get that message out there. <laughs> yeah, it tastes like mud, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, they're still um, obviously worth lovely to go and see. So diving or snorkelling or maybe even walking, it's still worth it. But keep your eyes out. Because hopefully if they're going to start molting, they might come back to the pier and mass. But some um, beautiful footage, especially the, the smooth rays. Just, you know, such gorgeous animals that are now protected, of course, around the piers. So, yeah. Fantastic, Terry. We'll have to move on. But it's been awesome catching up with you again and looking forward to doing so in the very near future. No worries, Bron. See you, Terry. See you. See you, see you Dr Beach. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye for now. Terry Allen there, our dive reporter. Triple R is where you are. It is coming up to 9.44, 16 minutes to 10 o'clock. Now, have you ever asked yourself, where did that time go and tried to account for maybe what you did over the last hour? Or maybe if you're like me, routinely at work every Monday morning, trying to account for what you did on the weekend. Eric Fitzgerald and his team have recently made a discovery that accounts for a bit longer than a weekend. Along with his colleagues in New Zealand and Belgium, their discovery accounts for a five million year gap in the global fossil record of baleen whales. It's being described as a story of evolution, extinction and resurgence. To explore what this means, let's ask Eric Fitzgerald himself. Good morning, Eric. And morning, Eric, and welcome to Radio Marinara. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you here. And we were talking while the track was on about the fact that I can't believe this is the first time we've had you in. I think we've tried a few times to to get you in because you've done such incredible work and the timing's never quite worked out. It, it's good to be here. It's It feels like, yeah, there have been a few opportunities that have uh, sort of skipped by, but we're here now. Let's it's, do this. It's wonderful. <laughs> now, five million year gap. Mm. How do you start accounting for five, five million years? Like, no pressure. Yeah, and, and I suppose, I mean, a lot of your listeners may be aware that the fossil record is full of holes. Um, it's often been described as a very cheap uh, version of Swiss cheese. So there's more holes than substance. Now, that's not entirely the case. And for whales, they have a pretty good fossil record. But there is this five billion year gap, which hasn't really been recognised until very recently. And we think we've got some, uh, some perspective on that, thanks to the local fossils. So we're talking about local fossils. Whereabouts in particular we have these discoveries been made? So... In this particular study, we focused on a window of time between about 28 million and about 15 million years ago. And that critical window of 28 to 23 million, which is, if you like, the first half of that window of time, um, one of the best places to study that around the world is just two, two and a half hours drive southwest of Melbourne on our very own surf coast near Torquay. Wow. What's special about that coast in terms of its its fossil rich fossil record? Yeah, so when we're when we're looking for fossils, we're not going out there blind, if you like. So um, most of Australia's been pretty thoroughly mapped by geologists, usually the government, and we know that there's rocks there that were formed at the bottom of the sea uh, between about thirty and fifteen million years ago. And those rocks are exposed. That is, they've been eroded. We can see the rocks there in the wave cut platforms, in the cliffs and in boulders. So because the rocks are there of the right age and the right environment in which the sediments were formed, we know that there are probably going to be whales. It's just a matter of finding them. Mm. Are the fossils quite obvious when you see them? No, they're not. Uh, And that's part of the reason why that fossil record hasn't been 
um, well documented until fairly recently. You really need to know what you're looking for. So if you, anyone, any of your listeners were to go down there today, have a look around, you'd see lots of uh, mollusk shells, sea urchins, brachiopods, that sort of thing, even some fossil corals, but you wouldn't necessarily see bones and teeth. Mm. What, what, what sort of fossil bones are, or bones and teeth are you looking for? Have you used in this study? So this study in particular focused on um, what I can, I'm biased, but what I consider to be the best bones, and those are the ear bones. Now, the ear bones of whales are, in fact, of all mammals, are really important because they have a very complex anatomy. There's lots of nooks and crannies, lumps, bumps, and what I call plumbing, you know, holes, or as we call them as anatomists, foramina. Um, there are lots of these complex features on these ear bones. And so that means that you can look for lots of uh, features that vary between different species of whale. And in that regard, the ear bone of a whale, even if you find it as a fossil, is much like, say, our fingerprint. And that means that when you find even a fragment of an ear bone, you can often identify what family of whale you're looking at. And sometimes, if you're really lucky, even the genus or species. Wow. Wow. Are, are these things like fist size or smaller or...? Yeah, so fist size and smaller. So most ear bones in, say, the great whales today, those are, those are the baleen whales, blue, humpback, uh, right whale, etc. They have enormous ear bones. I mean, some of them are approaching the, the size of a, of a child's head, shall we say. Pretty big. Um, but in the fossil record uh, at Jan Juk, these are much smaller, so fist size and smaller. The thing about them, though, which is really important to paleontologists, is that they're very, very dense. The bone is very densely constructed, which means they survive the rigours of the fossil record. Erosion, redeposition, tumbling, polishing, you'll still get some shape, and that's what we look for. Can we spend a minute or two talking about your co-authors and how you all came to work together? Because one's in Belgium, one's in New Zealand... How did this all come about? So my colleague in New Zealand, Professor Ewan Fordyce, um, he's sort of been a mentor of mine uh, for many years now, and he's really, I guess, the uh, world-renowned leader in the field of uh, whale evolution, whale paleontology. And him being based in New Zealand, me here in Australia, we've often compared, I guess, the different fossils that are found on either side of the pond. Mm. And Felix Marx got involved in this because he was actually based in Melbourne a few years ago as a postdoctoral fellow. And so he, he also had been pondering this very simple observation, which actually was the basis for the paper, not the whole issue of, I guess, this uh, dark age and, you know, filling this gap. And that is that if you look at the fossils from between about 28 and 23 million years ago in Australia and New Zealand, there's something really weird going on with the baleen whales. In Victoria, which is a proxy for all of Australia, because most of the fossils of that age are from Victoria, all the baleen whales are actually these relatively bizarre, tiny by whale standards, less than three metres long, maybe up to four metres long, uh, toothed baleen whales. These are the early, if you like, cousins of today's living baleen whales. Whereas if you look at rocks at the same age over in New Zealand, not far away, geographically speaking, even 25 million years ago, uh, most of the baleen whales are relatively larger, if you like, true baleen whales or toothless baleen whales that actually have that wonderful hair-like structure baleen in their mouths. And so we started wondering, what's going on here? Mm. What explains this? Is this real? Is it just that we haven't found enough fossils either in Australia or, for that matter, New Zealand? Turns out the pattern is real and it's statistically significant and it shows that 
really southern australia was a cradle of diversity and evolution for these bizarre little toothless weird whales wow absolutely amazing so what what is it about southern australia what what how did this come about how was what why is it a cradle of evolution for these guys that's the key question dr beach the critical question so really what we're seeing here is a difference in environment because they're otherwise geographically close you have in new zealand an open back then it was really an even more of an island chain so more of it was underwater and it was exposed to the pacific southern oceans if you like a truly open ocean realm whereas in southern victoria back then it's much more enclosed in fact you've got to imagine port phillip bay opening up to the west and extending right across what is currently uh, about Co the region of Colac, all the way over to Portland and beyond. The Otway Ranges were an island, okay? Huh. And you have Bass Strait more or less closed off to the east. So you imagine Wilson's Prom extending further south above water uh, and almost joining up with Tasmania, if not joining up as a land bridge. So you have this warm shallow sea in fact subtropical covering much of uh, western victoria at least the southern half of western victoria and it's in that warm shallow sea that you have a relatively complex environment shallower waters lots of embayments small islands and it's there that you had relatively small toothed baleen whales and that's different to the cooler waters probably much more productive more upwelling uh, waters around New Zealand at that time and larger ocean-going whales. Cool. So, so in the so, so the small so just I want to get this straight in my own head. So toothed baleen whales, the small ones, they are all extinct. We no we no longer. So we only have big baleen whales like sperm whales, for example, are really good examples of that now. Yep. And they're kind of out in the deep open ocean. Mm -hmm. And in the past, when we had the toothed small ones, they were in more sort of coastal areas and yeah. that, that, so that was a really good environment for them so what then changed so did they all go extinct in that area and then the other ones took off the baleen whales took off in the open ocean so this is the mystery right from about 23 million years ago you can almost snap your fingers in an evolutionary or paleontological sense and the little weird toothed baleen whales vanish from the fossil record the question is do they really vanish or we just haven't found their fossils yeah. But not only that, baleen whales as a whole seem to vanish from the fossil record. Mm. There's this gap that's what I call the global whale crisis between about <laughs> right. the GWC that begins about 23 million years ago until 17. So what we propose in this study is that at about 23 million years ago, there's a significant global drop in sea level. The seas recede off, if you like, the... Uh, the continental shelf. So this was the equivalent of the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. Um, uh, and it probably had far worse effects, shall we say, um, yeah. <laughs> on the global economy in the original sense of the word ecology, right? Yeah. So, so basically, um, we think that that sea level drop led to the loss of all that shallow coastal habitat, which was inhabited by these tiny baleen whales. So you lose all of them, and then all that's left are the offshore whales. And then it takes millions of years for baleen whales, if you like, to reinvade mm. coastal seas when sea level rises, perhaps surprisingly, especially in light of what's going on now in, on the planet and in the future, but sea level rises and baleen whales 
re-enter, if you like, or reclaim that habitat and evolve smaller body sizes. And there's almost an explosion of diversity. And in fact, that's the peak of whale diversity across their entire history. It's long, it's past, long past. And so that's what we think explains this pattern. Wow. And this is a really significant discovery, isn't it? Because the paper that you've had your, I can't even pronounce it, but the paper, here we go, ACTA, I'll have to get you to help me here. Acta Paleontologica Polonica. Thank you. <laughs> this is a, this is a really big deal in the world of paleontology, isn't it? Look, it's it's a really um, it's an interesting idea, and it's a big discovery in terms of our understanding of patterns in the evolution of whales, in mm. particular. But I think more broadly, in terms of trying to understand um, smaller scales, so smaller regional biogeographic changes in whales, which is usually very, very hard to do with the fossil record because mm. you don't have a fantastic example like we've used of Australia versus New Zealand, rocks of the same age, and generally a, a useful sample of fossils to compare. It's very hard to do that in the fossil record. And a very satisfying thing for you guys to, to, to make this discovery, to mm. have this, this realisation that, ah, this is, the, yeah, this is answering the question. What exactly, a beautiful exactly. I notice you're still um, with whales there. You've got a copy of um, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. I do. You're reading that at the moment? I do. Look, I, I've read it twice, yeah. um, but I, I brought it in just ju as a just-in-case because, you know, just in case there were some questions around, uh, I guess, um, I guess things that inspire me in my work. And I, and I often <gasps> turn to Moby Dick a particular chapter. Um, he actually has a chapter in there called the fossil whale, ah. which is all about fossils as they were known at the time. And in fact, when Moby Dick was first published, it was Herman Melville that gave us our first review, our first popular account of the evolutionary history of whales. It's in Moby Dick. So it's historically quite significant. But of course, it's in Melville's prose. So it's, it's uh, quite stirring. And so I, I'm often reminded of passages when I'm in the museum or any museum, even in the field, looking at bones any any whale bones and any he captures brilliantly i guess the uh how we can be transported back to lost worlds absolutely wonderful note to end on i could talk to you for at least another 10 or 15 minutes but we're almost at the end of our I'll have program to come back. please will you <laughs> will do be excellent we can treat Not this as part one and we'll, we'll go into part two in the next few weeks thanks so much for coming in eric my pleasure thanks for having me wonderful been speaking with uh, professor professor doctor Doctor. You, Doctor's fine. Yeah. You're professor now. I haven't been promoted. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll promote you. Um, Dr Eric Fitzgerald from Museum Victoria. 